7 o'clock in the morning on the West Coast. It is 10 o'clock in the morning on the East Coast. Good morning, America. It's 3 p.m. in London, 7.30 in Mumbai, India, 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan. And in Malaysia, it's 1952. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. <sighs> Welcome in. Hello. Hello. Uh, why don't I look a little yellow in that other camera tonight, don't I? I don't know why. Eh, whatever. Okay. Uh, first of all, before we start, a salam Ramadan al-Mubarak, wishing you a peaceful Ramadan. Uh, wherever you are in the world, particularly here in Malaysia, which is a mostly uh, Islamic country, uh, mostly Muslim country. And uh, today or now begins uh, the fasting month, uh, Ramadan. And uh, so we wish you a, a peaceful Ramadan. All right, uh, so we got that business out of the way. We've got uh, lots going on tonight, including... More stupidity. I know, it just never stops. Rumble's working tonight. That's a big plus, a big round of applause to our good friends over at Rumble. We are live there. <laughs> We're also live on Twitch.tv, YouTube, and Facebook. And wherever you may be watching, please just hit that subscribe or follow button, and we really appreciate it. Free to you. Doesn't cost a dime, but it helps us out a lot. And for those podcast listeners. Our numbers are up. We're almost at 900. We are so close to my $1,000 mystery goal. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for all the folks who download and subscribe to our podcast or follow our podcast. We're on all the platforms, wherever you get your podcast from. Just look for I'm Not Wearing Pants, this logo here, or Jay Sheldon with that logo. And that's it. You hit the follow button or subscribe, whatever it's called on your platform. And, uh, you're done. That's it. We appreciate you so much. And uh, like I said, we're, we're trying to get to a thousand. I know it's, it's, it's small potatoes compared to a lot of podcasts, but for us and our little show here, it, it truly means a lot. We're, we're poking at 900 right now. We're so close. Thank you. And thank you again to everybody who has, uh, <clears throat> who has signed up and subscribed. We really appreciate that. All right. Uh, oh, yeah, I meant to mention the platforms. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Geo7, wherever it might be. Check us out. All right. Uh, oh, yeah. How about Miko? Miko update. Miki, 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 Miko update. Nee, 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 nee. I got to change my Miko theme song here. It's not Christmas anymore. Anyway, Miko's doing well. She's uh, missing somebody very badly, but getting along and uh, sleeping in the air con right now, as she always does when we're doing our shows. She sits in the other room and enjoys the air con, which I, my little bit that leaks here into my studio, I get to share with her. But uh, she's doing well. We had two huge long walks today. She was pretty tuckered out. So uh, she's doing great. Thank you for asking. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll keep you updated on that. Um, coming up later on in the show, of course, we have our classic book. We are three chapters away from the end. And this third to the last chapter is huge. We'll get through as much of it as we can tonight. I don't think we're going to get through all of this chapter. Uh, so we'll probably have to break it up. And then two more to go. 
And then it's on to my favorite book. I am so happy we found this one. It is A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. And that'll be coming up probably another three or four shows down the road. We'll begin that book as soon as we wrap up with uh, with Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. We'll have that for you. All right. What else we got going on? Uh, we have the stupidity that is the marijuana laws in this country. Um, a Malaysian singer is actually ridiculously so facing the death sentence for cannabis charges. Well, one of our uh, parliamentarians here, Syed Sadiq, has uh, proposed uh, that medical marijuana be approved in this country. This, while most of the rest of the world has looked at marijuana as nothing more than an unharmful weed, uh, pun intended, uh, that does nobody any good, uh, I mean, does nobody any harm, in fact, is incredibly helpful in a lot of cases. I don't smoke marijuana. Um, I have in the past as a teenager, a little bit in my 20s. Uh, it just didn't do much for me. It, it was nothing. Uh, but uh, honestly, it's it's not a gateway drug. That stupid 50s CIA thinking, uh, don't be an idiot, you moron. Uh, it, it's harmless. There's nothing wrong with it. And I highly encourage, I mean, that always has to be the first step. You got to approve it for medical reasons because it is incredibly helpful for people that need it for medical issues. Unbelievably scientifically proven medically helpful. But in a lot of countries that still have that 1950s thinking, ooh, the evils of drugs. Look, morons, this isn't cocaine. This isn't fentanyl. This isn't heroin. It's pot, okay? And most of the rest of the world has moved past it and realized that it's just a plant and it's not harmful. And in fact, it is medically helpful. And sadly, in this country, and we're not alone, enough marijuana will get you the noose. As stupid as that is. Anyway, Malaysian singer-composer Mohammed Yassin Suleiman facing the death penalty, potentially, after being charged at uh, Pataling Jaya Magistrate Court on charges of distributing cannabis at his home. Uh, based on a report by Astro Awani, Yassin was charged with distributing canna cannabis weighing approximately 214 grams in a condo in Kota Damansara on March 24th. Uh, the prosecution made in accordance with the Ridiculous Dangerous Drug Act of 1952. Did I tell you? 1950s thinking, huh? Right there. Punishable, which provides for a life imprisonment or hanging to death. Well, I would hope it'd be hanging to death, not hanging to just a really bad headache. Anyway, the stupidity of this law with regards to marijuana. In fact, as much as I'm a conservative, a centrist, free speech, absolutist mostly, I completely disagree with the death penalty for any crime, no matter how heinous it might be. I don't believe the government or anybody else 
has the right to take your life, no matter what you've done. Prison for life, I'm all in favor of it. And before you even start, yes, I will pay more taxes to pay to keep the moron criminals in jail for the rest of their natural life. But I completely, and I have my entire life, 60 over years, been totally against the death penalty, no matter the crime. It is not our place in this world to take someone's life for any reason. And to take somebody's life for having marijuana is one of the dumbest things ever. This needs to be fixed. Uh, he also could get life imprisonment, of course, but, I mean, that alone. Uh, if given the option of life in jail, he would also face a maximum of 15 lashes if convicted. Yes, here in Malaysia, we still whip people. Don't even go there. I'm not going to. But anyway, yeah, there you go. A follow-up article here from the uh, MalaysiaNow.com. Uh, charged with cultivating cannabis and drug trafficking. That's the, uh, the singer there. And um, charged in court. And uh, he, uh, charges was read out to him. And uh, no plea was recorded in the case. Uh, he is best known for his song, Mimpi Laila, uh, charged with cultivating 17 cannabis plants. And um, he had some sort of a, Anyway, he reached out, requested his client be allowed bail on the grounds he had a bipolar disorder, was receiving psychiatric treatment, and um, yeah, so there you go. The link to both of these stories is in our show notes tonight. You can read all the details, the sad details about this ridiculous law we have in this country about marijuana. Other drugs, lock them up, throw away the key. No problem with that at all. But uh, in the case of marijuana completely different story and it's time Malaysia woke up and realized that was the case like a lot of the rest of the world and don't give me this western culture crap that's bullshit it and you know it culture has nothing to do with science <sighs> what else is going on hey Justin Bieber is coming to Malaysia <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Who cares? But apparently a lot of people care a lot. Bieber is having a concert. It's coming up towards the end of this year. I think October, something like that. Ooh, big yawn. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. Anyway, the tickets have apparently gone on sale. And this article, which is in our show notes, our description down below, Appeared in the world of Buzz. We love the world of Buzz on this show. Check this out. Not only are people willing to pay hundreds of dollars for tickets to see this guy in concert, but scalpers are selling the t or reselling the tickets for up to 10,432 ringgit. Now, Doing the math, and I'm terrible at math, that would be around 2,000 USD, maybe? Just a little over 2,000 USD a piece for scalper tickets. But over 10,000 ringgit, I can tell you that's more than a lot of people, most people make in a month. A lot more than most people make in a month. Over 10,000, 10,500 ringgit. 
for Bieber tickets. Seriously? Man. Anyway, the link is in our show notes to the uh, World of Buzz article. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, a few months away, tickets went on sale. Oh, yesterday. Sold out in a matter of hours as diehard Biebers rushed to secure their place. And uh, the tickets ranged. Oh, wow. Tickets were from 288 ringgit to 2,088 ringgit. And all quickly snapped up by Malaysians. And, of course, scalpers were in on the action. They've already begun listing the tickets. Check this out. These are the costs. Ghost VIP package, two grand over. Peaches VIP package, 1488 Hold VIP package, 1188 Twitter users share screenshots of how scalpers are selling them on apps like Shopee, Carousel, and Viagogo. And uh, between 6500 and 10400 per ticket. Cheapest from a scalper, $1,564. The original price, half that. Unbelievable. Are you mad? For Justin Bieber? Hey, okay. <laughs> Whatever. It's happening out there, folks. If you want to pay the money, you get to see the show. <laughs> That's a lot of money. No thanks. Oh, man. All right. Darren, uh, our good friend Darren, he's a fan of the show. He joins us quite often here as a, uh, a viewer. He shared this on his uh, Facebook. It's a public post. So not giving away any secrets here. You can check it out. I think I put the link in the show notes in our description down below. But it's great. It, it's really cool. Um, ancient Sanskrit. Um, you know what? I want to check something. Sanskrit is a classical language of South Asia that belongs to the Indo-Aryan branch of the Indo-European language. It arose in South Asia after its predecessor languages had diffused there from the North e Northwest in the late Bronze Age. I just had to look that up because, you know, I know what Sanskrit is, but I didn't actually know the definition of Sanskrit. So there you go. Well, this has been handed down from ancient Sanskrit, and it's brilliant. Rules for being human. You will receive a body. You will learn lessons. There are no mistakes, only lessons. A lesson will be repeated until it's learned. Learning lessons does not end. There is no better than here. Others are merely mirrors of you. What you make of your life is up to you. Life is exactly what you think it is. I love these. Your answers lie inside of you. You will forget all of this. And you can remember it whenever you want. How cool is that? Rules for being humid handed down from ancient 
Sanskrit. I absolutely put the link to that in our show notes tonight. Share that around your social media because, wow, that's nice. I like that a lot. Very, very cool. All right. Thank you, Darren, for sharing that. You know, uh, we are all freaky about um, science on this show. Got a really cool NASA story with Voyager. We haven't heard about Voyager in a long time. In the meantime, as I've told you time and time again, uh, we have this thing in, in our country here called Mysajatra. It is, uh, you're probably there, it looked like that. I'm going to move the phone right there. Okay, so you can sort of see it. Um, it is a way of checking in to businesses or restaurants when you go, and uh, it basically tracks you. Uh, and it has your vaccination information, all this other crap in it. These days, people are wearing their masks on their chin or on their heads or hanging off their ear. People just really don't give a crap anymore. It's really kind of over. For those of you still tr triple masking and hiding in your house 24 hours a day, uh, enjoy yourself. The rest of us are getting on with our lives. But uh, this story has been popping around the news sites lately. This one is from World of Buzz. Again, thanks, World of Buzz. Mysajatra, that's the app I just showed you, has outlived its usefulness, says the Medical Association. And Malaysians agree. Now, that's a better picture there. You can actually see this is what the front of the uh, app looks like when you're going to go to check in. And then they have these QR codes that you scan, and that tells you or tell somebody where you are. <laughs> and it's geotracked and everything. Nowadays, if you have your Bluetooth turned on, it'll even tell you how many other people you interacted with every day. Yeah. Anyway, rising concerns on the ownership of the MySadatra app. Certain sectors believe the app, which we rely heavily on in our daily lives, has outlived its usefulness. Uh, recently, the MMA, Malaysian Medical Association, said the MySadatra may have outlived its usefulness as a contract, contact tracing application. Uh, MMA President Dr. Kokar Cha said that the app scanning feature for the purpose of contract tracing no longer as useful as it was in the early phases of the pandemic. And here is the press a statement that was released. He also called for an end to the use of the MySadatra app for contact tracing purposes. <laughs> saying it has outlived its usefulness. Seriously, nobody checks anymore. I know you're not supposed to say that, but it's the truth, you know? And if, if anything you're going to get out of this show is I'm not going to BS you. I'm just going to tell you the way it is. Sometimes that's not politically correct. I don't give a crap. It's what's happening, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. People aren't really wearing their masks. Besides, masks are useless anyway. They always have been. People are half-assed checking in with their MySadatra app. And nobody is checking that you're vaccinated or not or that you even checked in. So, yes, Malaysian Medical Association, you are correct. You want to read the rest and the details of this story. It's from World of Buzz and the link is in our show notes tonight. So please do check it out. And let's just get rid of this garbage because it's useless and nobody's using it anyway. All right, here we go. <laughs> I love stories about space. If I find them, we put them on this show because we 
always love doing it. We just did the James Webb telescope story. We've had some updates on that. Some incredible pictures. By the way, if you're on Facebook, search James Webb telescope. There's a group there. Join the group. It's public, and they post all kinds of cool pictures and updates on this amazing telescope where already, even in the beginning adjustment period, we have seen pictures that were never before possible. It is truly amazing. All right, but this one, oh, man, what an amazing story. It's from uh, physics-astronomy.com. Link's in the show notes, so you don't have to worry about that. Just click on the link. You can open the, uh, the, the article and read it yourself. NASA woke up Voyager 1. You remember Voyager 1. It was originally designed to go out into space, and uh, it's, it hasn't been used for a couple of decades. And there was no guarantee that it would even respond, let alone actually start up. And they woke it up from 13 billion miles away, and the spacecraft actually signaled back. Whoa! Man, I got a car in the driveway that hasn't run in a month, and it won't even start. But uh, that makes the feat NASA achieved just a few days ago even more impressive. That's an artist's rendition of uh, Voyager 1 out there in space. They contacted Voyager 1 in an interstellar space after an amazing 37 years of inactivity to briefly activate its thrusters. Launched in 1977 to check out the outer edges of our solar system, it will occasionally communicate with NASA's deep space network, gets routine commands, beams back data. But on November 28th, NASA had to interact with the spacecraft and perform a minor course correction, firing up microthrusters that hadn't been activated since 1980. No idea after 37 years without being used if they would even be able to activate it. But um, indeed, they got a reply, and the tests were successful. Thanks to how far the spacecraft is from the Earth, the team didn't even know it had worked until 19 hours later, almost a whole day down the road before they got the data back through space that said, yes, it, uh, it acknowledged the command. This is amazing. After all that time, that thing is sitting out there in space, and like a trooper, it's still working. Amazing. What a great story. Check out the uh, all the details in that story. It's in our show notes tonight, in our description. You can, uh, you can read up on it. It is amazing stuff. Wow. All right. Uh, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. We're going to uh, move on and over to our book tonight. As you know, we, uh, we read classic novels on this show. And we've been doing that from almost the very first episode. We've done tons of them. Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, The Little Prince, Peter Pan, uh, you name it. We've done so many great classic books. And we have been doing Tom Sawyer from Mark Twain for the last many streams because it's a long book. It's like 39 chapters. We're starting chapter 37 tonight. It's kind of long. We'll probably have to cut it into at least two, maybe three. But once we get done with Tom Sawyer, just a few more chapters to go, um, I got a 
email from my nopants at jsheldon.com email address. You can use that for any communication you want with us. Nopants, N-O-P-A-N-T-S, at jsheldon.com. And I read and reply all your messages. But uh, a, a good friend and a viewer, a uh, fan who um, regularly watches or listens to the show, <clears throat> Gail, thank you. Uh, she suggested and found on Gutenberg.org, the Gutenberg Project, that Winnie the Pooh was available. It is my all-time favorite book. If there was one book I wanted to read on this show, this is it. And it is now available. So you bet your buttons. We will be starting that book as soon as we're done with Tom Sawyer. So, yeah. Be prepared. Get ready. <laughs> All right, let's uh, call up the title of the book. I will warn you, however, as we always do with this book in particular, this was written back in 1876 by Mark Twain. Some of the words and phrases uh, in this book are completely inappropriate in this day and age, including things like the N-word. In 1876, that was an appropriate word, able to be used freely. Nowadays, not so much. However, we are reading the book exactly the way it was written. So if those kind of things offend you, you may want to find something else to do for the next 15 or 20 minutes or so. Having said that, you've been warned. <laughs> We're going to move on to chapter 33 in Mark Twain's Adventures of Tom Sawyer. You recall in our last episode, Tom told the judge that Injun Joe was in the cave. Within a few minutes, the news had spread, and a dozen skiffloads of men were on their way to McDougal Cave, and the ferry boat, well filled with passengers, soon followed. Tom Sawyer was in the skiff that bore Judge Thatcher. When the cave door was unlocked, a sorrowful sight presented itself in the twilight of the place. Injun Joe lay stretched upon the ground, dead. His face close to the crack of the door as if his longing eyes had been fixed to the latest moment upon the light and the cheer of the free world outside. Tom was touched for he knew by his own experience how wretched he had suffered. His pity was moved but nonetheless he felt an abounding sense of relief and security now which revealed to him in a degree which he had not fully appreciated before how vast a weight of dread had been lying upon him since the day he lifted his voice against this bloody-minded outcast. Injun Joe's bowie knife lay close by his side, its blade broken in two, the great foundation beam of the door had been chipped and hacked through with tedious labor. Useless labor, too. It was, for the native rock formed a sill outside of it, and upon that stubborn material the knife had wrought no effect. The only damage done was to the knife itself. But if there'd been no stony obstruction there, the labor would have been useless still. For if the beam had been wholly cut away, Injun Joe could not have squeezed his body under the door, and he knew it. So he had only hacked that place in order to be doing something, in order to pass the weary time, in order to employ his tortured facilities. 
Ordinarily, one could find a half dozen bits of candles stuck around in the crevices of this vestibule, but left there by tourists, there were none now. The prisoner had searched them out and eaten them. He had also contrived to catch a few bats, and these also he'd eaten, leaving only their claws. The poor unfortunate had starved to death. In one place near at hand, a stalagmite had been slowly growing up from the ground for ages, builded by the water drip from a stalactite overhead. The captive had broken off the stalagmite, and upon the stump had placed a stone wherein he had scooped a shallow hollow to catch the precious drop that fell once every three minutes with the dreary regularity of a clock tick. A desert spoonful once in four and twenty-four hours. That drop was falling when the pyramids were new, when Troy fell, when the foundations of Rome were laid, when Christ was crucified, when the conqueror created the British Empire, when Columbus sailed, when the massacre at Lexington was still news. It is falling now. It will still be falling when all these things shall have sunk down the afternoon of history and the twilight of tradition and have been swallowed up in the thick night of oblivion. Has everything a purpose and a mission? Did this drop fall patiently during 5,000 years to be ready for this flitting human insect's needs? And has it another important object to accomplish 10,000 years to come? No matter. It's many and many a year since the hapless half-breed scooped out the stone to catch the priceless drops. But to this day, the tourist stares longest at that pathetic stone and that slow-dropping water when he comes to see the wonders of McDougal's cave. Injun Joe's cup stands first in the list of the cairn's marvels. Even Aladdin's palace cannot rival it. Injun Joe was buried near the mouth of the cave, and people flocked there in boats and wagons from the towns and from all the farms and hamlets for seven miles around. They brought their children, all sorts of provisions, and confessed that they had had almost as satisfactory a time at the funeral as they could have had at the hanging. The funeral stopped the further growth of one thing, the petition for the governor for Injun Joe's pardon. The petition had been largely signed, many tearful and eloquent meetings had been held, and a committee of sappy women had been appointed to go in deep mourning and wail around the governor, implore him to be a merciful ass and trample his duty underfoot. Injun Joe was believed to have killed five citizens of the village. But what of that? If he'd been Satan himself, there would have been plenty of weaklings ready to scribble their names to a pardon petition and drip a tear on it from their permanently impaired and leaky waterworks. The morning after the funeral, Tom took Huck to a private place to have an important talk. Huck had learned all about Tom's adventures from the Welshman and the widow Douglas by this time, but Tom said he reckoned there was one thing they had not told him. That thing was what he wanted to talk about now. Huck's face saddened, and he said, I know what it is. You got into number two, but never found anything but whiskey. 
Nobody told me it was you, but I just knowed it must have been you soon as I heard about that whiskey business. And I knowed you hadn't got the money, because you'd have got me some way or t'other and told me even if you was mum to everybody else. Tom, something's always told me we'd never get a hold of that swag. Why, Huck, I never told on that tavern keeper. You know his tavern was all right the Saturday I went to the picnic. Don't you remember you was to watch there that night? Oh, yes, but why, it seems about a year ago. It was that very night that I followed Injun Joe to the Witters. You followed him? Yes, but you keep mum. I reckon Injun Joe's left friends behind him, and I don't want him souring on me and doing me mean tricks. If it hadn't been for me, he'd been down in Texas now, all right. Then Huck told his entire adventure in confidence to Tom, who had only heard of the Welshman's part of it before. Well, said Huck presently, coming back to the main question, whoever nipped the whiskey in number two nipped the money too, I reckon. I reckon it's always a goner for us, Tom. Huck, that money was never in number two. What? Huck searched his comrade's face keenly. Tom, have you got the track of that money again? Huck, it's in the cave. Huck's eyes blazed. Say it again, Tom. The money's in the cave. Tom, honest engine now, is it fun or earnest? Earnest, Huck. Just as earnest as I ever was in my life. Will you go there with me, help me get it out? You bet I will. I will if it's where we can blaze our way to it and not get lost. Huck, we can do that without the least little bit of trouble in the world. Good as wheat. What makes you think the money's... Huck, just you wait till we get in there. If we don't find it, I agree to give you my drum... And everything I got in the world, I will buy jings. All right, it's a whiz. When do you say? Right now, I, if you say it. Are you strong enough? Is it far in the cave? I've been on my pins a little, three or four days now. But I can't walk more than a mile, Tom. At least I, I don't think I could. It's about five mile into there the way anybody but me would go, Huck. But there's a mighty shortcut that they don't know anything about. Huck, I'll take you right to it in the skiff. I'll float the skiff down there and I'll pull you back again all by myself. You needn't ever turn your hand over. Let's start right off, Tom. All right, we'll want some bread and meat and our pipes and a little bag or two. Two or three cot strings and some of these newfangled things they call lucifer matches. I tell you, many's the time I wish I had some when I was in there before. A trifle afternoon, the boys borrowed a small skiff from a citizen who was absent and got under way at once. When they were several miles below Cave Hollow, Tom said, Now you see this bluff here looks all alike the way down from the Cave Hollow. No houses, no woodyards, bushes all alike. But do you see that white place up yonder where there's been a landslide? Well, that's one of my marks. 
We'll get ashore now. They landed. Now, Huck, while we are standing, you could touch a hole I got out with a fishing pole. See if you can find it. Huck searched all over the place and found nothing. Tom proudly marched into a thick clump of sumac bushes and said, Here you are. Look at it, Huck. It's the snuggest hole in this country. You just keep mum about it. All along, I've been wanting to be a robber, but I knew I got to have a thing like this, and where to run across it was bother. Now we got it, and we'll keep quiet. Only we'll let Joe Harper and Ben Rogers in, because, of course, there's got to be a gang, or else there wouldn't be any style about it. Tom Sawyer's gang. Sounds splendid, don't it, Huck? Why, it just does, Tom. And who we rob? Almost anybody. Wayward people, mostly. That's mostly the way. And, and kill them? No, not always. Have them in the cave till they raise a ransom. What's a ransom? Money. You make them raise all they can, often their friends, and after you kept them a year. If it ain't raised, then you kill them. That's the general way, only you don't kill the women. You shut up the women, but you don't kill them. They're always beautiful and rich and awful scared. You take their watches and things, but you always take your hat off and talk polite. They ain't nobody as polite as robbers. You'll see that in any book. Well, the women get to loving you. And after they've been in the cave a week or two, they stop crying. And after that, you could, couldn't get them to leave. If you drove them out, they'd turn right around and come back. It's so in all the books. Why, it's really bully, Tom. I bet, I believe it's better than to be a pirate. Oh, yes, it's better in some ways, because it's close to home and circuses and all that. Well, by this time, everything was ready, and the boys entered the hole. Tom in the lead, they toiled their way to the further end of the tunnel and made their spliced kite strings fast and moved on. A few steps brought them to the spring. Tom felt a shudder quiver all through him. He showed Huck the fragment of candle wick perched on a lump of clay against the wall and described how he and Becky had watched the flame struggle and expire. The boys began to quiet down to whispers now, for the stillness and gloom of the place oppressed their spirits. They went on. Presently, Tom entered and followed Tom's other corridor until they reached the jumping-off place. The candles revealed the fact that it was not really a precipice, but only a steep clay hill, twenty or thirty feet high. Tom whispered, Now, I'll show you something, Huck. He held his candle aloft and said, Look as far far around that corner as you can. You see that? There, on the big rock over yonder, done with candle smoke. Tom, it's a cross. Now, where's your number two? Under the cross. Right yonder's where I saw Injun Joe poke up, poke up his candle hook. Huck stared at the mystic sign a while and then said with a shaky voice, Tom, let's get out of here. 
What? And leave the treasure? Yes, leave it. Injun Joe's ghost is round about there, I'm certain. No, it ain't, Huck. No, it ain't. I wouldn't have in the place where he died. Away at the mouth of the cave, five miles from here. No, Tom, it wouldn't. It would hang round the money. I know the ways of ghosts, and so do you. Tom began to fear that Huck might be right. His misgivings gathered in his mind. But presently, an idea occurred to him. Now, look here, Huck. What fools we're making of ourselves. Injun Joe's ghost ain't going to come around where there's a cross. The point was well taken, and it had its effect. Tom, I didn't think of that. But that's so. It's luck for us, the crosses. I reckon we climb down there and have a hunt for that box. Well, Tom went first, cutting crude steps in the clay hill as he descended. Huck followed. Four avenues opened out of the small cavern where the great rocks stood in. The boys examined three of them with no result. They found a small recess in the one nearest the base of the rock with a pallet of blankets spread down on it. Also an old suspender, some bacon rind, and a well-gnawed bone or two of three fowls. But there was no money box. The lads searched and searched this place, but in vain. Tom said, He said under the cross. Well, this comes nearest to being under the cross. It can't be under the rock itself. Besides that, because that sets on solid ground. Well, they searched everywhere once more and then sat down discouraged. Huck could suggest nothing. And by and by, Tom said, Look a here, Huck. There's footprints, some candle grease on the clay about one side of the rock, but not on the other sides. Now, what's that for? I bet you the money is under the rock. I'm going to dig in the clay. That ain't no bad motion, Tom, and Huck said with animation. Tom's real Barlow was at once out. He'd not dug four inches before he struck wood. Huck, you hear that? Huck began to dig and scratch now. Some boards were soon uncovered and removed. They concealed a natural chasm which led under the rock. Tom got into this and held his candle as far under the rock as he could, but said he could not see to the end of the rift. He proposed to explore. He stooped, passed under. The narrow way descended gradually. He followed its winding course, first to the right, then to the left. Huck at his heels, Tom turned a short curve by and by and exclaimed, My goodness, Huck, look a here. It was the treasure box. Sure enough, occupying a snug little cavern, along with an empty powder keg, a couple of guns in leather cases, two or three pairs of old moccasins, a leather belt, and some other rubbish well-soaked with water drip. Got it at last, said Huck, plowing among the tarnished coins with his hands. 
My, but we are rich, Tom. Huck, I always reckoned we'd get it. <coughs> it's just too good to believe, but we have got it, sure. Say, let's not fool around here. Let's snake it out. Let me see if I can lift the box. Well, it weighed about 50 pounds. Tom could lift it after an awkward fashion, but couldn't carry it conveniently. I thought so, he said. They carried it like it was heavy that day at the haunted house. I noticed that. I reckon I was right to think of fetching the little bags along. The money was soon in the bags, and the boys took it up to the cross rock. Now, let's fetch the guns and things, said Huck. No, Huck, leave them there. They're just the tricks to have when we go robbing. We'll keep them there all this time, and we'll hold our orgies there, too. It's an awful snug place for orgies. What's orgies? Mm, I don't know. But robbers always have orgies, and of course we've got to have them, too. Come along, Huck. We've been here a long time. It's getting late, I reckon. I'm hungry, too. We'll eat and smoke when we get to the skiff. Well, they presently emerged into the clump of sumac bushes, looking warily out, found the coast clear, and were soon launching and smoking in the skiff. As the sun dipped toward the horizon, they pushed out and got underway. Tom skimmed up the shore through the long twilight, chatting cheerily with Huck and landed shortly after dark. Now, Huck, said Tom, we'll hide the money in the loft of the widow's woodshed. I'll come up in the morning, we'll count it and divide it. Then we'll hunt up a place out in the woods for it where it'll be safe. Just you lay quiet here and watch the stuff till I run and hook Benny Taylor's little wagon. I won't be gone a minute. He disappeared and presently returned with an old wagon, put two small sacks into it, threw some old rags on top of them and started off, dragging his cargo behind him. When the boys reached the Welshman's house, they stopped to rest. Just as they were about to move on, the Welshman stepped out and said, Hello, who's that? Huck and Tom Sawyer. Good, come along with me, boys. You're keeping everybody waiting. Here, hurry up, trot ahead. I'll haul the wagon for you. Why, it's not as light as it might be. Got bricks in it or old metal? Eh, uh, old metal said Tom. I judge so. The boys in this town will take make more trouble. Fool away more time hunting up six bits worth of old iron to sell to the foundry than they would to make twice the money at regular work. But that's human nature. Now hurry along, hurry along. The boys wanted to know what the hurry was about. Never you mind. You'll see when we get to the widow Douglas. Huck said with some apprehension, for he was long used to being falsely accused. Mr. Jones, we haven't been doing nothing wrong. The Welshman laughed. Well, I don't know, Huck, my boy. I don't know about that. Ain't you and the widow good friends? Well, yes, she's been good friend to me anyway. All right, then. What do you want to be afraid for? The question was not entirely answered in Huck's slow mind before he found himself pushed along with Tom into Mrs. Douglas's drawing room. Mr. Jones left the wagon near the door, 
and followed. The place was grandly lit. Everybody was any consequence in the village was there. The Thatchers were there, the Harpers, the Rogers, Aunt Polly, Sid, Mary, the minister, the editor, and a great many more, all dressed in their best. The widow received the boys as heartily as anyone could well receive two such looking beings. They were covered with clay and candle grease. Aunt Polly blushed crimson with humiliation and frowned and shook her head at Tom. Nobody suffered half as much as the two boys did, however, Mr. Jones said. Tom wasn't at home yet, so I gave him up, but I stumbled on him and Huck right at my door, and so I just brought him along in a hurry. And you did just right, said the widow. Come with me, boys. She took him to the bedchamber and said, Now, wash and dry it and dress yourself, and Here's two new suits of clothes, shirt, socks, everything complete. They're Huck's. No, 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 thanks. Huck, Mr. Jones bought one and I the other. But they'll both fit both of you. Get into them. We'll wait. Come down when you're slicked up enough. And then she left. And that's chapter 33. I don't know what's going on, but we'll find out next time in chapter 34. Only two more chapters to go in this amazing book. And uh, yeah, we will have that for you on our next live stream. Wow. I told you that was a long one. I warned you. I warned you. <laughs> All right, friends. Thanks so much for popping along for the ride. It was a long one tonight. I will see you again on Monday night for another live stream. And thanks for those of you who have listened in on the podcast. Truly appreciate you uh, subscribing and following our show. Uh, we're almost at 900 on our way to 1,000 downloads average a week. And uh, what a milestone that will be for us. Thank you so much. Can't encourage you enough if you are watching to check out our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Radio Public, Geo7, wherever. Thank you for uh, the likes and follows and subscribes. I'll see you Monday. Until then, I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. Good night. <laughs>